Well, happy second Sunday of Advent, uh, the Sunday of peace. Um, as we mentioned last week, uh, Advent is the beginning of the uh, Christian calendar, which means that like, we're, we're two weeks into a, a new year, if you will. And also, like we mentioned last week, uh, I think there's something scandalously beautiful that um, we don't begin a new year with like all sorts of fanfare and fireworks and celebration, but we begin with waiting. <laughs> this new year doesn't begin with the celebration of Jesus and his birth, but it begins with the four weeks of waiting leading up to it. And maybe the reason why I'm saying this again is because even though I said it last week, I found myself this week like getting really impatient waiting for something to happen, right? And so maybe I'm just saying it for myself and I'll keep saying it for myself each week until this begins to like take root in my soul. But I'm guessing I'm not alone in that one, yeah? Um, and so... Uh, because we're in Advent and that's a new season, we have a new sermon series that we've been working through uh, called Restoration is Near. And so uh, as we get ready to jump into our sermon uh, for this morning, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Loving God, uh, we are so grateful for the, the chance to be together today. Uh, we're grateful for this community and um, just the, the goodness that exists here. Thank you now uh, that we get to uh, open the scriptures and wrestle with them. And as we uh, do so, we yield ourselves to your spirit. And we ask that your spirit lead us, guide us, and shape us more and more into the way of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've been waiting on a war since I was young. Since I was a little boy with a toy gun. Never really wanted to be number one, just wanted to love everyone. Is there more to this than that? Is there more to this than that? Is there more to this than that? Is there more to this than just waiting on a war? Uh, this is the opening line to the February 2021 uh, hit, Waiting on a War, by the legendary rock band, The Foo Fighters. <laughs> and uh, in, an in an interview with Rolling Stone, uh, Dave Grohl, the front man of, Dave, uh, of The Foo Fighters, um, talked about the inspiration of this song. He said, last fall I was driving my daughter to school. She turned to me and asked, Daddy, is there going to be a war? My heart sank as I realized that she was now living under the same dark cloud that I had felt 40 years ago. Every day waiting for the sky to fall. Is there more to this than that? Is there more to this than just waiting on a war? Because I need more. We all do. The song was written for my daughter, Harper, who deserves a future just as every child does. Um. I uh, listened to the song on repeat uh, at the beginning of this year, January, February, around the time when it seemed as though like war was going to be imminent between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I listened to the song um, and used it almost as a prayer as I began to process through like the implications of what it means for like a world superpower to be an engaging in war with a much smaller country. I began to like, use it as a prayer as I thought about like, what this means for the people of Ukraine. I began to use it as a prayer as I thought about the implications of this across the globe and the geopolitical things that begin to happen when there's war. I began to use it as a prayer as I thought about what this means for us as like, 
a nation. I began to think, uh, use this as a prayer as I thought about the implications for me and my family, my friends, my community, and all of us. The song ends with this refrain of, is there more to this than that? Is there more to this than that? Is there more to this than that? Because I need more than just waiting on a war. I don't know about you, friends, but I need more than just waiting on a war. And yet, uh, I acknowledge that for most of my life, like the world has been in this perpetual state of war. <laughs> We've been in a perpetual state of military intervention. We've been in this perpetual state of like global conflict. And because of this, like, we recognize that our approach to global conflict has been so shaped that like, war seems like the only sort of answer. I mean, how many of us, as we were reading about what was happening between Russia and Ukraine, just like, kind of resigned ourselves to the fact that like, war was going to happen, right? Or we see this perhaps in the 2022 U.S. budget, which has something like $770 million dedicated to defense spending, which is 13 times more uh, than the amount of money that we have dedicated towards international diplomacy and international aid. I don't know if you know this, but if there was international diplomacy and international aid, this might perhaps cut down on the need for that $770 billion. And yet we recognize that our approach to global conflict has been so shaped by war. And because our approach to global conflict has been so shaped by war, this begins to shape our imagination and our approach to local conflict, meaning like the police. Um, police departments, uh, many police departments have uh, received um, equipment that are on expiring leases from the military, which means that our police forces now are like hyper-militarized, which means that it's no longer like Andy, er, uh, Sheriff Andy showing up with uh, Barney Fife, but it's like a pseudo-military force showing up when we have conflicts between neighbors. And because our approach to global conflict has bled into our approach to local conflict, and our approach to local conflict has now begun to bleed into our approach of interpersonal conflict. Which means that when I enter into conflict with you, perhaps because all I see around me is war, my first response is going to be triggered into a, a, a posture and a response and a reaction of war between you and me. Is there more to this than that? And at this point, we recognize that the Foo Fighters uh, song uh, reads a little less like a rock ballad and perhaps a little bit more like the words of the Hebrew prophets. And we ask ourselves then, are we just waiting on a war? Is this all that we can do in the midst of all of this global and local and interpersonal conflict? Is this the only sort of posture that we have in this world? Are we just waiting on a war? Or perhaps, is there something else we can be doing? Are we just waiting on a war, or are we working for peace? Now, I, I get it. I really do. Like, to bring up this question of are we working for peace in the midst of, like, a conversation about how global, our approach to global conflict has bled into local and interpersonal. Like, I get that asking this question at best feels a bit overwhelming, <laughs> and at worst probably comes across just downright ignorant. <laughs> um, and yet, uh, within our very scriptures, we see one particular story about one particular woman who, when faced with this sort of crossroads moment of waiting on a war or working for peace, chose to respond in a particular way. And that's the story of Esther. 
And so I want to sit with this story uh, for a moment this morning and see if we might glean some wisdom in how we might uh, move from just simply waiting on a war towards working for peace. So Esther was a young Jewish woman whose parents, were told, died when she was young. And so she was adopted by her cousin Mordecai, uh, who uh, acted as her guardian and essentially like raised her and they lived together into adulthood as like companions then, uh, as one another's family. And Esther and Mordecai lived in what is referred to as the Jewish diaspora. Say diaspora with me. Diaspora. So the last number of weeks we've talked about the implications of uh, the world superpower of the day of Assyria and Babylon and how Assyria came in and sent uh, the northern kingdom of Israel into exile and how Babylon did the same to the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, now there's a new world superpower named Persia who overtakes Babylon. And when Persia came to power, they said, hey, all Jews can head back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple and rebuild their cities. But not every Jew did that. Some instead stayed to live in these communities and these homes that they had built up, which is now referred to as the Jewish diaspora. So this is Esther and Mordecai, and they find themselves living in this diaspora in the city of Susa. Now Susa is apparently where the king of Persia, King Xerxes, lives. Now, the backstory to the story of Esther is uh, King Xerxes does this sort of kingly thing and has this big fancy banquet shindig that goes on for days and days and days and there's a lot of eating and lots of drinking. And then we get to a particular point in the celebration days into it where the king calls to his wife, the queen Vashti, to come and flaunt how beautiful she is to all of the people. And Vashti says, no, 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 I am not some piece of eye candy. I will not do that. And while we in in 2022 say, yes, kudos to you, Vashti, that was a very awful thing for her to say to one of the most powerful men in the world because he stripped her of all of her, uh, all of her, uh, stripped her of her title and her power and any sort of uh, privilege that came with that. So what's a king to do without a queen other than find a new queen? And so he orders that... uh, all sorts of young women be brought from the land into the palace to find a new queen. And this is where the story gets a little strange, a little weird, and a whole lot disturbing. But at the end of this, this young woman, Esther, emerges as queen. Now, throughout this whole process of uh, King Xerxes finding a queen, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, says, do not share the fact that you are Jewish with anybody. So she doesn't. Now, because this is a good story, like all good stories, there's a good bit of conflict within it. And almost all of the conflict in this story revolves around this man named Haman. You have to say it like that, because he's just the worst, right? Now, Haman uh, emerges as like the the right-hand man of King Xerxes and carries with him like the sort of power that comes with being a right-hand man of the king of a giant dominant empire. But there's one thing that we need to know about Haman, and I've already said it. Haman is awful. Haman is the worst. And you don't even have to take my word on it because Esther witnesses to this. So in Esther chapter 5, we read this about Haman. Haman sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendors of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced above the officials and the ministers of the king. Is that a dude you want to hang out with? Absolutely not. He's like Ryan Reynolds at the beginning of every single movie that Ryan Reynolds is in without the boyish sort of charm, right? Like, nobody wants to hang out with Haman because he's awful. He's the worst. 
And in fact, because Haman is the worst, as he ascends to this role of like number two in the land, he walks around the empire and makes everybody bow down to him as he walks past him. Like this dude is way too big for his britches, am I right? But the problem occurs when one day he's walking through the city and there's one particular man who will not bow down to him. And that man is Mordecai. So Haman, uh, hot and bothered by this, begins to like do some digging. and like, why will Haman not bow down to me? And Haman, or uh, why, why will Mordecai not bow down to me? And it comes up and Mordecai responds, I'm Jewish. A quick side note. The word God is never once mentioned in the book of Esther. Fascinating. It's within this whole book about God, we have an, a, a book within this book that doesn't use the word God once. So we don't actually know why uh, Mordecai refuses to bow down. But if we know a little bit about like, Jewish history, we know that like, idolatry, bowing down to other sorts of godly sorts of figures, is a big no-no. And so we can deduce that like, the reason why Mordecai won't bow down is because Haman wants to be God, and Mordecai's like, no, you're not God. We, I serve the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Well, again, Haman gets all hot and bothered by this. And so rather than just taking it out on Mordecai, he says, I'm going to take it out on Mordecai and all of his people. And so he goes to the king and says, hey, king, let me kill all of the Jews, and why don't you put your little signet ring on this so that like, it comes as like word from the king. And so this happens. Caught up to speed here? All right, so this is what's happening in Esther chapter 4 as we read. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province where the, king's command, where the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Like, this is not a good scene, right? Like, this is a very dire sort of situation, and all of the Jews and all of the land are feeling this, are in this posture and position of mourning and grief. Well, Esther catches wind of this, and so she, she sends some of her servants to go talk to uh, Mordecai and figure out what's going on. And so they engage in this, this back and forth, and uh, Mordecai eventually is like, hey, queen, why don't you use your position as queen to do something about this and save us as a people? And uh, Esther then says, well, I can't. See, nobody's allowed to just wander in and talk to the king without like being invited because that can lead to death. And I don't know if you remember, but I'm only queen because Queen Vashti didn't do what the king said and she was, you know, we lost track of her in the story, right? And so they, they engage back and forth and after Esther says that like she can't do this, then we read, when they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that the king's palace do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps for, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. See, Esther finds herself in a bit of a conundrum here, right? 
Because if she doesn't speak up, all of the Jews in the land are going to be killed. And Mordecai reminds her, oh, by the way, you're Jewish. <laughs> Which means that like, eventually your secret's going to be had and you yourself will now die. But if she does speak up, like she's risking like what sort of mood the king's in that day, right? And she might die as a result of going and talking to the king, which then will mean that all other Jews throughout the land will also die. This is quite the conundrum, yeah? And this is a moment then where Esther is finding herself at at a bit of a crossroads, perhaps asking this question of like, are we just waiting on a war? Or are we working for peace? This question of perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this is essentially wrestling with this question, being at this crossroads of what do we do in the midst of when the world seems like it's falling apart? Are we just waiting on a war or are we working for peace? And it's at this point in the story, like I want to pause and acknowledge that like anytime somebody steps forward and does some sort of work of peace, whether that be Esther, whether that be you, whether that be me, whether that be we, whether that be all of us collectively, that any sort of work of peace requires an immense amount of bravery and courage. That like to be committed to the work of peace is to be like an incredibly brave and courageous individual. So we're Mennonites, uh, which means that like we're pacifists, which, you know, like pacifism is our thing. We do it humbly because we're Mennonites, but because we're Mennonites, we're pacifists, right? Now, it's important to acknowledge that like, pacifism isn't passiveism, right? To, to hold to a position of peace doesn't mean that like, we just stand back with our hands up and say, hey, the world may fall apart, but like, we're not going to intervene in it in any way. And yet, this is often like, the, um, the misconception that we as, as Mennonites and other sorts of pacifists have. And I think there's probably actually good reason why we've gotten this, because this has sort of been our MO for a bit. So going all the way back to the Radical Reformation, right? You have the Reformers who are doing this sort of thing, and then you have the Anabaptists who step in and say, like, you haven't gone far enough. Like, let's push this agenda. And everybody else is like, no. And we're going to, like... kill you because of it, right? And so, like, this happens for a while, and then eventually the Anabaptists are like, we've seen enough of our leaders be uh, ended, so, like, we're just going to retreat and become the quiet in the land. Like, you do your thing, we do ours, we're fine, we're good, and this kind of became our posture for a while. Broad strokes, there's always exceptions throughout history, right? Pacifism then uh, kind of became synonymous with passivism. But over the last number of generations, like, people have really begun to rethink, what does it mean to be a people of peace? Is it just simply being passive in the midst of conflict? Or is there another sort of posture? And they began to realize, like, being a person of peace means being active in the midst of conflict, not just being passive. Like, stepping forth into areas of conflict where there might actually be sorts of violence that's happening and actively begin to work towards peace without uh, weapons uh, of death. And then some others began to think through this even more, and they said, well, maybe peace isn't just being active, but maybe it's actually being proactive. And like stepping into areas of injustice to bring about like, things like relief and development, like the work of Mennonite Central Committee. Uh, because again, when there's um, injustice and like, uh, spaces where there's aid that's needed, like, that's often where conflict bubbles up. So maybe we can be proactive and relieve these sorts of things so that peace is there. See, to work towards peace it requires an immense amount of bravery and courage. 
It's to step into the spaces of conflict without uh, instruments of war to bring about um, the, a state of peace. It's about being proactive so that we don't have to react with violence. And this is where Esther finds herself. Trying to wrestle through, is she just waiting on a war or is she going to work for peace? Now, spoiler alert, uh, she leans in and works towards peace and saves her people. But before we get to that, we read a really fascinating part of the story that I know I often overlook. Following this, perhaps for such a time as this sort of line, uh, we read, Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Um, so before Esther does this brave and courageous thing, she fasts. Because she's a good Jew, that means that this fasting is also being paired with prayer. And she doesn't do this alone, but she summons all of the other Jewish folks within the region to do the same sort of thing with her. Which means that before Esther does this brave and courageous thing, she, she needs to get her inner world squared away, right? She needs to do some work on her spirit, on her soul, so that she can do this brave and courageous work. And she summons the support of her community to do so. See, I think uh, when we think of the story of Esther, we're often drawn to it because of her immense bravery and courage. We're often drawn to it because of this, like, for such a time as this sort of moment. And I think that's good. I think that's admirable. I think that's beautiful. But I wonder if we often forget uh, that in the midst of this, that in order to be prepared for such a time as that, we need to prepare in such a time as this, <laughs> Meaning, like, to be prepared in such a time as that, like, when we have to determine if we're waiting on a war or working towards peace, like, there's an awful lot of preparation that can be done and needs to be done right here, right now, in this moment. Because things like courage and bravery and inspiration and creativity for peace don't just pop out of thin air, but those things need to be uh, nurtured within us. Those things need to be culture, or cultivated within us. They need to be grown within us. They need to be fostered within us. Yes, this sort of uh, creativity and uh, inspiration and bravery and courage is most certainly like the work of God in our life. But I think we have like a profound role in that. Because God's uh, default MO seems to be like inviting us in on the process, not doing anything about us without us, right? And we recognize that God's peace is flowing all throughout this world and we have like a responsibility to like step into that in some way and allow that to work in us, to prepare us in such a time as this so that in such a time as that we can react in a way that's peaceful. Our world is so violent, our world is so reactionary that to live alternatively to that, we need to live intentionally into this. So we began by asking this question of are we just waiting on a war or are we working towards peace? We acknowledge that uh, at best this is an overwhelming question. At worst, it's an extremely ignorant question. Uh, we looked at the story of Esther and we talked about her immense bravery and courage. And we acknowledge that to be prepared for such a time as that, we need to prepare in such a time as this. And lastly, I want to suggest that um, if we want to be people of peace, people that take this work of peace seriously, that the best way that we can prepare is through prayer. 
Because I think that the work of peace is actually rooted in the work of prayer. When I was in grad school, I was uh, doing the hard work of shoring up some of like, my, my deep sort of theological convictions. And one of those was around this idea of peace. Um, and so I was getting together with a buddy of mine, and as we were catching up, I said, um, I, I think I'm a pacifist. Which I felt like I had to whisper back in the day, right? Because it felt like a really scandalous thing. Um, but I was in this process of realizing that peace isn't just like a second or third degree thing and like this gospel that Jesus has invited us into, but it, like it's core to it. And so I, I told him, I, I think I'm a pacifist. And he does what most people do when you tell him you're a pacifist. He began with all the what if questions, right? What if somebody violently or does something violent in front of you, to you, to your family? Like what, what will you do in that situation? And I don't think he was trying to like be mean. I think he himself was sorting through these sorts of convictions as well and wanted to like, be let in on my process. So after going back and forth for a bit, I, I finally said to him, like, listen, man, like, I'll be honest. I don't know what I would do if there was something violent that happened to me or in front of me or to my people that I care about. But I hope that um, all of the time that I've spent thinking about prayer Reading, or thinking about peace, reading about peace, uh, talking about peace, and even praying about peace will have done something to me. I hope that all of this thought and reading and talking and prayer will have like, shaped me in a way to respond at least less violently, if not like downright nonviolently and peaceful. In the years since, I've, I've discovered that this is actually neurologically true. Like, this is how our brains work. We have a part of our brain called the amygdala, which is like the oldest, one of the oldest parts of our brain. And its like job is to like detect fight or flight. Like, this is the part that we react out of. It's an incredibly reactive sort of thing. Uh, this is where like you can jump to like quick assumptions and like when you feel the, the hair rise up on the back of your neck, like that's your amygdala at work. But we have another part of our brain that's much more evolved, much newer, called the prefrontal cortex. And this is where like logic and rationality and uh, creativity and being proactive uh, lives. But the problem is, like, our brains will default to the amygdala because it's like the old part of our brain. It's like the default MO. And so we have to find ways of moving from our amygdala, this fight or flight, this being reactive, to this creativity, to this being proactive. How do we move? How do we stretch our brain? How do we rewire our default MO? It's through things like meditation. It's through things like contemplation. It's through things like prayer. <laughs> prayer can literally rewire our brain to move us from fight or flight, being reactive, to creativity, to being proactive. And there's even more than this. Uh, there's an author, uh, pastor, professor, activist by the name of Brenda Salter McNeil. She wrote a book called Becoming Brave about Ra racial reconciliation. And uh, the book is like an extended commentary on the book of Esther. And she writes, when we pray, we affirm that justice and shalom or peace begins with God and not with us. Prayer helps us reaffirm that the justice we seek starts with God's heart for justice and not our own. Again, like this peace that we long for, this is flowing everywhere. This is like the work of God all around us. And our job is just to simply align ourselves with it. She goes on and she says, prayer gives us God's perspective. It moves us past our knee-jerk reactions, the sort of amygdala, fight-or-flight sort of mode and helps us submit to the will and the way of God. Prayer cultivates patience. Prayer aligns us in an intimate partnership with God and others. That's why it's vital to recognize Esther demonstrates the importance of prayer and discernment in community. 
She did not pray alone. She asked Mordecai to have her community join her and her handmaidens in prayer, united together. I often say that reconciliation, I think we can talk in terms of justice and peace as well, cannot be done in isolation. It must be done in community. Having others who will listen to God with us, who may be able to corroborate what we feel and sense we're hearing from God in prayer is essential. We can't do this alone. And so, uh, my friends, because we can't do this alone, I want to offer to us uh, a prayer uh, or a, a practice to take with us this week and perhaps even throughout the season of Advent. Um, this practice is a, a contemplative practice called a breath prayer. And I found these to be a really fascinating thing uh, over the last while. What a breath prayer is, is like we, pray, we, we pair a prayer with our breath. And so as we breathe in, we pray a certain prayer. And as we breathe out, we pray a certain prayer. And it becomes this beautiful sort of symbiotic relationship between our words and our breath and the very spirit of God that does this sort of deep sort of forming deep within us. So the words for this prayer come to us from Jesus' very mouth in Matthew chapter 5 uh, within the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The sense here is like God, God is the origin of all of this peacemaking. Like this is the family business, if you will. And when we join in on the family business, like we're called children of God. And so our breath prayer for us this week is we breathe in. So you can practice this with me. Breathe in. Blessed are the peacemakers. And as we exhale, we are your children. Blessed are the peacemakers. We are your children. Maybe you uh, use this throughout your week in the morning as you sit with your cup of coffee. Uh, you breathe in. Blessed are the peacemakers. We are your children. Maybe it's on your way to or from work instead of your latest podcast, which I'm all about the podcast, right? But sometimes they distract us. We breathe in. Blessed are the peacemakers. We are your children. Or maybe as you're uh, waiting in line or at the doctor's office and like you're feeling that impatience and you want to distract yourself with your phone, we lean into the season of Advent and wait and we pray. Blessed are the peacemakers. We are your children. Friends, to prepare in such a time as that, we need to prepare in such a time as this. My prayer for us is that this prayer might help shape us and form us to move from a place of just simply waiting on a war to begin to actively like work towards peace. Amen.